Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Last night, I dialed up the video of the message that I preached in Chattanooga this year. And I was listening to myself talk about the grace of God. That was my primary topic, grace. And toward the end of the message, I turned to Janine and said, I like it when that was me. I like it when I was the grace guy. Because as we've worked our way through the imperatives of James, there's just been a lot of do stuff. And as we've been working our way through Ezekiel, there's been a lot of judgment from God. And I I just feel like it's been months since I've been the grace guy. And I used to be known as the, the grace guy. But tonight, the judgment language in Ezekiel is going to continue and get even more dramatic. Ezekiel chapter 21 is where we're starting tonight. And it can kind of be broken down into four sections where God speaks to Ezekiel and in each instance he refers to his own sword, his own judgment being poured out. The deeper you dig into it, the more you look at it, the more you realize and recognize that as you're thinking about the character and the nature of God, that God is very, very determined, very, very zealous that his righteousness, his justice is meted out. It's part of his personality. The same God who is gracious, the same God who is loving, is also holy and is also very righteous and his justice must be meted out. And he told the Israelites from the very beginning of his relationship with them, when he formed a covenant with them, he said, if you do this, I'm going to bless you. And if you don't, I'm going to punish you. And now God is explaining yet again through Ezekiel that the things that are happening to Jerusalem, the things that are happening in Judea and the way that they're being deported out into Babylon, the way the city is going to be destroyed, the fall of the temple, all of that is under God's sovereign hand. There is a theory that abounds these days that when good things happen, when blessings happen, that's God. God, the good God, the big loving God. He always does the good and the loving things. Every time there's a blessing, every time you get healthy, any time you get a gift, oh, that's a, God is being good to me. And then people think that when bad things happen, that that's the devil. That's just the devil, and God had nothing to do with that. God didn't even want that to happen. Poor God is up there wringing his hands, unable to stop the bad things that happen. But here in chapter 21, God is going to say, these terrible things that are happening to you, these armies that are invading you, the way that you're being taken out of your land and taken into slavery after being deported into Babylon, all of that is me. I'm doing all that. That is my sword. And God, as he talks about his own judgment, his own righteousness, becomes practically poetic. When God speaks of his own character of judgment, 
he sees it as as high and as fulfilling a characteristic of his as any of his gracious characteristics. It's all part of who he is. So when he talks about his justice and he talks about his sword and he talks about meeting out punishment to his people who should have known better, he talks about it in terms that are very unlike the terms we would use. We would say, well, God is punishing, but he doesn't want to. Or God is punishing because he has to, but he's doing it reticently. The truth of the matter is, he's about to say, I've polished up my sword. It's gleaming. I have polished it and put it to the whetstone, and I have sharpened it, and I'm getting ready to mete out punishment, and that's all me. And you have to remember that that's the God that you're dealing with. And if it is true that that kind of righteousness, that kind of justice is as much a part of God as his grace and his love and his long-suffering, then you should be, again, very, very thankful that he is meeting out long-suffering and grace and patience with you because he's perfectly willing to demonstrate himself as the judgment God. So we're going to read from... Chapter 21 this evening, hopefully we'll get through the whole thing without me having a coughing spasm. We can kind of break it down into four big segments, like I said. The first seven verses are God describing his own sword drawn, and it's a double-edged sword, and he's going to say that it cuts both ways, and it goes to the right, and it goes to the left. From verse 8 to like verse 17 we see the sword sharpened, God getting ready to execute judgment, his own judgment, with his own sword. From verse 18 to verse 27, his sword is directed toward Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and Ammon had kind of partnered up there toward the end in order to uh, fight against the incursion of Babylon. And in many ways... Ammon seemed to be happy and even kind of did a bit of political chicanery that we'll get into to keep Babylon going after Jerusalem, to keep them away from themselves. So the last verses of the chapter are the sword of God directed toward Ammon. But the entire chapter is about the sword of God. And when we think about God, we think about his loving kindness and his charity and his grace and his gifts that he gives people. We very seldom think about the sword of God, the justice of God. But he is perfectly willing to describe himself as the God whose righteous anger has to be appeased. And he will appease himself in pouring out his own anger, his own wrath, his own sword, his own punishment. And that is why... As I've said for many years and keep stressing, that is why Christ is so very important. Because what God did in Christ is that he protected us from his own wrath. God is perfectly willing to pour out his wrath, perfectly willing to pour out his justice. And we deserve that wrath and we deserve that justice. But God himself created a way through the death of his son through accepting the sacrifice of his son as sufficient payment, he created a way that he could righteously forego his own punishment and his own wrath so that he didn't have to pour it out on absolutely everybody. 
And that's the importance of Christianity. Christianity is not just about name it and claim it and have a better life and healthy all the time, bigger car, bigger house. It's just, it's not about that. It's about the fact that God, the real God, the biblical God, is just like he describes himself here in chapter 21. He is a God who is sharpening his sword and ready to cut people down. And in doing so, he's demonstrating his nature, his character. He's perfectly willing to be like this. And he would have to be like this to everybody who ever lived were it not for the fact that God is also good and gracious. And so he constructed a way that he would not have to pour out this kind of punishment on everybody. And that's the importance of Christianity. Okay, with that introduction, let's start reading chapter 21. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and speak against the sanctuaries and prophesy against the land of Israel. So he's actually prophesying at this point against the temple and against the actual land itself. So set your face toward Jerusalem, speak against the sanctuaries and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I shall draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. In other words, I'm going after everybody. When my sword is sent into the land of Israel to clear Israel of its abominations and its idol worship and its bloodshed, It's not going to be discriminating. It's going to take out everybody across the board. So God says, I will cut off from the land, from you, the righteous and the wicked. Therefore, my sword shall go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus, all flesh will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath, and it will not return to its sheath again. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan in their sight. Now, you might recall that a couple of weeks ago, as we were at the end of chapter 20, that Ezekiel was saying to God, I've said to them everything you told me to say to them, but they think I'm just speaking in parables. They think that this is not real prophecy, that you're not actually going to do this. You're not really going to pour out your punishment on Jerusalem. Then I said, this is verse 49 of chapter 20, then I said, ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, is he not just speaking parables? Well, now God says to Ezekiel, just go out then and groan if they're not going to listen to what I'm saying. If they're not going to pay attention to what I'm saying through you, go out and groan in misery. And they'll ask you, what do you mean by this groaning? As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan in their sight. And it will come about when they say to you, why do you groan that you will say, Because of the news that is coming, and every heart will melt, 
all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, all knees will be as weak as water. Behold, it comes and it will happen, declares the Lord God. Okay, that's the first quarter. You can tell God is real serious about this. My sword is coming and I'm going to cut off everybody from the land. I'm going to cut off the wicked and the righteous. My punishment, my judgment, my sword. But God's not done there. Starting at verse 8, he says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord. Say, A sword, a sharpened sword, and also polished. Sharpened to make a slaughter. Polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice the rod of my son, despising every tree. Okay, so does it sound like God's messing around here? Because it seems like it would have been enough to just say the sword of the Lord. God is going to bring out his sword. He's going to cut off everybody. Now God is bragging poetically about his sword. His sword is gleaming and polished so that it's going to be like lightning. And it's been sharpened and he polished it so that he can make a slaughter. Now, did God actually show up in Israel and take a sword and slaughter everybody. Did that actually happen? No. How did he do this? He did it with the Babylonian armies. And he gave the Babylonian armies preeminence over the Israelites so that the Israelites would be defenseless to ward off the attacks of the Babylonians. But God took credit for all of it. When something that bad happens... When something that terrible happens, it would be easy to say, well, then God's abandoned us. It'd be easy to say, well, then God doesn't care. Where's God in all this? I can't count the number of times the terrible things have happened, whether it's hurricanes or whether it's floods or whether. I remember being in San Francisco one year and there were mudslides because of the heavy rains. And the hills were sliding with mud and they had a mother on who had her child in her hand, and as the mud came through, she lost grip on her child, and her child disappeared into the mud. And they were talking to her with cameras on, which I find kind of uh, rude, but they were saying, you know, what happened and what do you think? And the mother looked at the camera and she said, now I know there is no God. She was bereaved and grief-stricken because she had just lost her child, but look what she got out of it. In the midst of all that terrible stuff, what she got out of it is, where's God? Well, you can imagine that in the midst of God's own chosen people, his own covenant people, he's now going to drive them out of the land, give the Babylonians authority over them. He's going to drive them into the Babylonian captivity. He's going to wipe out great numbers of them with plagues and famines and the sword. And you can see that they would say, where's God? God is saying, I'm right in the middle of it. I'm doing it. I haven't disappeared. I'm in charge of it. I'm sovereign regardless. Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say a sword, a sword sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a slaughter, 
polished to flash like lightning. And then this odd phrase, or shall we rejoice the rod of my son despising every tree? I have looked up a couple of different commentaries. Even the NET notes point out that that word can be translated rod. It can be translated scepter. It can be translated tribe. And so you have to kind of decide, depending on your interpretive approach, is he saying, or shall we rejoice my tribe? Or shall we rejoice the scepter of my son? But the notes of the NET say, or shall we rejoice scepter of my son? It despises every tree. The translation understands the subject of the verb despises, which is a feminine form in the Hebrew text to be the sword, which is a feminine noun, mentioned just before this. Alternatively, the line may be understood as, let us not rejoice, O tribe of my son. It, the sword, despises every tree. And the word sometimes translated as or can be taken as an interrogative participle, Or as a negative participle, we're not really sure. So the point is, it's a really tough line to interpret. Verse 11 says, And it is given, the sword, that's the it, is given to be polished, that it may be handled. The sword is sharpened and polished to give it into the hand of the slayer. Okay, who's the slayer? To give it into the hand of the slayer the Babylonians. So it's still God. My point is it's still God who is behind the fact that the Babylonians conquered Israel. And as they conquered them by starving them out, conquering them with the sword, through all the bloodshed, through all of the pestilence and the sickness, through all of that, it's actually God who says, I did it, and then I gave it over to the Babylonians to do. I polished my sword, I sharpened my sword to make a slaughter, and then I handed it to the slayer. So cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh. So now the instruction is, I told you a minute ago, go out and groan, and they'll ask you, why are you groaning? What's the groaning about? Then they're going to listen to what you tell them. Well, I'm groaning because of the bad news that's coming. This time when you go out, again, don't say anything. Go out and slap your thigh, strike your thigh in a sign of repentance and a sign of woe and in a sign of grief. Go out, strike your thigh, cry out, wail. For there is a testing, and they are turned over. They are delivered over to the sword. So there is a testing, and what if even the rod which despises will be no more? Here it goes again. Ezekiel 21.13, according to the NET note, says, For the testing will come, and what if also a scepter it despises will it not be? That's the actual Hebrew word for word of what's being said. So the translation understands the subject of the verb despises, which is a feminine form in the Hebrew text, to be the sword. That's the thing that despises. That's the thing that is causing the slaughter. And once again, 
It may be a rod. It may be a scepter. It may be a tribe. But there's going to be a testing. That's the important part. And what if even the scepter or the rod which despises will be no more? Okay, so let me add one more thing here. If it is rod, which it might be, that might be the proper meaning of the word, well, then it could be the rod of discipline of God, that God has disciplined the Israelites time and time again, and he has sent them prophet after prophet to explain what's happening to them, to explain the difficulties that they're going through, that it is the rod of correction of God. And the Israelites, rather than be corrected by it, rather than learn from it, despised it. And so God is now bringing out this judgment that he's bringing out, the sword that's going to cut down everyone, everything. But here's what you do. You, therefore, son of man, prophesy and clap your hands together. That's not like hooray. That's not, yay, we like it when God kills everybody. It's clap your hands in grief. It's clapping and slapping your leg and moaning and wailing. You, therefore, son of man, prophesy and clap your hands together. And let the sword be doubled the third time, which means let the sword be twice Every time, over and over, the third time, doubled again, the sword for the slain. It is the sword for the great one slain which surrounds them, that their hearts may melt, and many will fall at all their gates. I have given a glittering sword. Ah, it is made for striking like lightning. It is wrapped up in readiness for slaughter. Show yourself sharp. Go to the right. Set yourself. Go to the left, wherever your edge is appointed. I shall also clap my hands together, and I shall appease my wrath. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's the heart of this whole passage. I always look for the middle, for the center, for the heart of a passage, and that's it. It's God saying, I will appease my wrath. Mm. And once God says he's going to appease his wrath, that has to happen. And he's either going to appease his wrath in the punishment of his enemies, in the punishment of the people who deserve the punishment, or he's going to appease his wrath in the death of his son. And the people that are in his son are not going to undergo the wrath of God. But one way or the other, God is going to appease his wrath. That's part of his character. That's part of his nature. The loving God, the good God, the gracious God, the giving God, the long-suffering God is also the God of judgment and wrath. And if we forget that, if we think of God as the great cosmic marshmallow in the sky... If we think of God as always being the good guy who's just always for us just because he's always friendly, if that's all we think of God, then Christ is almost superfluous because God was going to be good to us anyway because he's just a good God, because he's just a nice guy, because it's just easy to get along with. And he doesn't care about our sins. Sure, we sin some. Sure, we rebel some. But he doesn't care Well, that's not the God you find in the Bible. You find a God who is angry at sin. You find a God who has laid out, this is righteousness, this is sin. Now be holy. And then we don't. And so he's angry at us. 
And so he's full of vengeance and wrath toward us. So what does he do? He appeases his wrath by pouring out his wrath with a double-edged gleaming sword that cuts down everybody, or he satisfies his wrath in the death of his son. But either way, the wrath has to be appeased. And that, again, is why Christ is so very, very important. Now, in this instance, God is talking about cutting people down, removing them from the land, and it's really about life and death. There's not a lot said in this passage about salvation. I don't know that this is a salvation passage, but it is about living in the land or being taken out of the land, and it is about living on planet Earth or, or being cut down and, and dead. Now, what God does with those dead people, since he's cutting down the righteous and the wicked, how he divides that up and what the ultimate judgment is, is all up to him. But at this point, he's talking about cutting people down. If he's willing to cut people down, mow people down, sword people down because he's angry at them for their sin, and that judgment seems harsh, how much harsher will his eternal judgment be against those that have sinned against him who are his eternal enemies, who he is going to send into outer darkness, out of his presence, where the worm never sleeps, where the fire is never quenched. He's perfectly willing to do that. We read this and we think, wow, that seems like a fearsome God. That's a God who hasn't even begun when it comes to eternity. So again, I say the same thing Jeff said Sunday morning, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Because the God you're dealing with is just like this. You get it? And knowing that he's just like this, and knowing that he's willing to be just like this, should make us all the more thankful for the grace of God that wins out toward his chosen elect beloved people because he's like this I think we have a tendency even those of us who have been believers for a very long time to think eh I'm not that bad isn't that typical of us and passages like this remind us how bad even the righteous are if he's willing to mow down the wicked and the righteous, I mean, he's, he's angry at everybody. We just all deserve it. There are some who are saved by grace, but they deserve it. There are some who aren't going to be saved by God's grace, but they deserve it. We all deserve it. And that's what he's showing here. So starting at verse 18, God is now going to intersect Human history. I like it when the Bible and human history intersect like this because it's one of those opportunities, again, to take a look at God's word and at what happened in the Middle East and say, wow, God really knew what was going to happen. Here he's going to predict that the king of Babylon reaches a fork in the road and has to decide whether he's going to go to Jerusalem or whether he's going to go to Ammon. And he's going to try various forms of divination to try to figure out which way he should go. And wouldn't you know that the lot fell to Jerusalem? And God takes credit for it and says, I made sure the lot fell to Jerusalem. So let's read it first, and then I'll tell you a little bit of history. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, verse 19, As for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come, both of them 
will go out of one land and make a signpost, make it at the head of the way to the city. You shall mark a way for the sword to come to Rabah of the sons of Ammon, that's the capital of Ammon, and you'll mark a way for the sword to come to Judah into the fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of these two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the household idols. He looks at the liver. Into his right hand came the divination, Jerusalem, to set battering rams, to open the mouth for slaughter, to lift up the voice with the battle cry, and to set battering rams against the gates, and cast up mounds to build a siege wall. And it will be to them like a false divination in their eyes. They have sworn solemn oaths. Now that they, at this point, he's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem will think, well, if you sought God's advice on this through your divinations, and it came up Jerusalem, that would be a false divination. Because we're Jerusalem. We're the chosen people. This isn't supposed to happen to us. So to them, it's going to seem like a false divination in their eyes because they swore a solemn oath. They swore an oath to Babylon that they were going to serve Babylon. But then they broke that oath, made a deal with Egypt, came into cahoots with Ammon, and tried to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And so they deserve Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, which they're going to get. So they're going to say, we have sworn a solemn oath. So this is a false divination. But he brings their iniquity, their breaking of the oath. He brings it to remembrance that they may be seized. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your deeds, your sins appear. Because you have come to remembrance, you will be seized with the hand. And you, O slain, wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown. This will be no more the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I shall make it. This also will be no more until he comes, whose right it is, and I shall give it to him. Okay, let me unpack that a little bit. He's talking about Zedekiah. He's talking about the fact that Zedekiah, the king of Israel, he's the prince who's coming to the end of his days. You know that he's going to be blinded. His sons are going to be killed in front of him. He's taken into Babylon, which he never sees, and he dies there. So God has removed the turban and taken off the crown. And in so doing, he has abased the one who is high, and he exalts that which is low. And then three times God says, a ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I shall make of it. So the lineage of David, which was promised to David, carried on all the way to Zedekiah, and then there seems to be a cutting off of the kingship over Israel, except that God says, this also will be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I'll give it to him. That's Christ. 
when Christ comes, when I send my son, who is the ultimate king of Israel, then I'm going to give the authority and the kingship and the leadership over Israel to my son, whose right it is to rule. But I'm going to cut it off at Zedekiah until he comes. Now, I mentioned earlier that the king of Babylon had come to a parting of the ways. Let me read something to you. Ezekiel's third message on the sword. I'm just going to read it to you because it's easier than me just trying to cite it. Ezekiel's third message on the sword showed God's directing the sword of Babylon against Jerusalem. In symbolic actions, Ezekiel pictured God supernaturally guiding Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem to overthrow the city. God told Ezekiel to mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take. When Jerusalem rebelled against Babylon in 588 B.C., she was one of three cities or countries that were seeking independence. The other two were Tyre and Ammon. Nebuchadnezzar led his forces north and went from Babylon along the Euphrates River. When he reached Riblah, north of Damascus in Syria, he had to decide which nation he would attack first. He could head due west toward the coast and attack Tyre, or he could go south along one of two highways that actually stood leading to Jerusalem and to Ammon. Tyre was the most difficult of the three cities to attack. You can read about that in chapter 26 and chapter 29. God is going to deal with Tyre, but remember Tyre and Sidon? Tyre was an island. It was difficult to attack because it was a fortified city surrounded by water. Tough to get your army out there, too. In fact, it wasn't until the time of Alexander the Great that Alexander finally started building a causeway all the way out to it and conquered Tyre. So if you've got those three choices, Jerusalem or Ammon or Tyre, you're going to leave Tyre alone and head south. His choice, then, was whether to head down the coastal highway and attack Judah and Jerusalem or to head down the Transjordan Highway and attack Ammon and Rabal. Rabal was the capital of Ammon and is identified with the modern city of Ammon in Jordan or Ammon in Jordan. The war council met at Riblah at the fork in the road, just like the Bible says, to decide which course of action to take. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar and his generals could not agree on which direction to go, so they consulted their gods. Nebuchadnezzar used three means to determine his course of action, casting lots using arrows, consulting his idols, and examining the liver. Casting lots with arrows was probably similar to today's practice of drawing straws. Two arrows were placed in a quiver, each one inscribed with the name of one of the two cities that were considered for the attack, and the arrow that was drawn or cast out first was the one that the gods indicated should be attacked. And the consulting of idols involved the use of teraphim or household idols. The exact nature of that practice is unknown. Perhaps the idols were used in an attempt to contact departed spirits and hear their advice. Examining the liver was a form of divination known as hepatoscopy. Anybody know that? Use it in a sentence later. Impress your friends. The shape and the marking of the liver of a sacrificed animal was studied by soothsayers to see if the proposed plan was favorable or not. So any of these practices by themselves couldn't do anything. 
But according to God's word, God worked through them to accomplish his judgment. Into Nebuchadnezzar's right hand would come the lot for Jerusalem. As Nebuchadnezzar went through his procedures, God had all the signs point toward the coastal highway and Jerusalem. And that would be where they decided to proceed. The rulers of Judah, as I said earlier, had pledged an alliance to Babylon but they had violated their oath by rebelling. And yet, even as Nebuchadnezzar set up his siege works around the city, the people refused to believe that he would succeed. They thought his omen was false and that he was doomed to failure, but they were obviously wrong. Since they had broken their covenant with Nebuchadnezzar, he was going to take them captive. So that's exactly what the Bible says. As for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them will go out of one land and make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to the city. And you will mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah, to the sons of Ammon, or to Judah, into the fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the ways, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the household idols, he looks at the liver. Into his right hand came the divination, Jerusalem, to set battering rams and open the mouth for slaughter, to lift the voice for the battle cry, and to set battering rams against the gates, to set up mounds, to build a siege wall, and it will be to them to the residents of Jerusalem, like a false divination in their eyes. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings iniquity to remembrance that they may be seized. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your deeds, your sins appear because you have come to remembrance, you will be seized with the hand. And you, O slain, wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown, and this will no more be the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high, a ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I shall make it, and this also will be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I shall give it to him. So you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the sons of Ammon. And now we begin the fourth segment of this chapter. Thus says the Lord God concerning the sons of Ammon and concerning their reproach. Say to them, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for the slaughter, to cause it to consume, that it may be like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the wicked who are slain, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end. Return it to its sheath in the place where it was created, the land of your origin. I will judge you. And I shall pour out my indignation on you. I shall blow on you with the fire of my wrath. And I shall give you into the hand of brutal men skilled in destruction. And you will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be in the midst of the land. 
and you will not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Okay, so let's look at a little bit of history and see what he's talking about here. He's talking against the Amorites who thought they had escaped Nebuchadnezzar's attack. Ammon and Jerusalem, though they were enemies, had allied against Babylon. And when Nebuchadnezzar decided to attack Jerusalem, Ammon was, of course, relieved. They were thankful that Jerusalem was going to suffer in their place. In fact, after Jerusalem's fall, the Ammonites organized a coup that caused the death of Gedaliah, the governor of the land who had been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. The Ammonites set up another government of their own in Israel that would oppose Babylon so that Nebuchadnezzar would again attack Judah instead of attacking Ammon. So that was their little bit of political chicanery, which is why God says, I know what you've done, and I'm going to burn you too. The sword has been polished for Jerusalem, and then it would also reach Ammon. The Ammonites thought that they'd escaped Nebuchadnezzar's judgment, but they would be punished. In God's wrath and fiery anger, he would hand Ammon over to brutal men, men skilled in destruction. These invaders are identified in 25.4 as people from the east, and that's possibly a reference to nomadic invaders because the fire of judgment directed against Judah was also going to consume Ammon. So with that little bit of background, you can understand him saying, now talk to the sons of Ammon concerning their reproach, their hatred of Jerusalem, their political chicanery, and say a sword is drawn, polished for the slaughter, to cause it to consume, that it may be like lightning. In the land of your origin, I shall judge you. That's kind of interesting because he created the sword for Jerusalem. He created the sword so that it would cut through Jerusalem. But he says to Ammon, I'm going to return it to its sheath. And in the place where you were created, in the land of your religion, I'm going to judge you. And I will pour out my indignation on you. And I shall blow on you the fire of my wrath. And I shall give you into the hand of brutal men skilled in destruction. Notice again that if you're just reading a history book and you read about the destruction of Ammon and you read about the nomadic armies that they were fighting with forever, you could read that. And really, unless you have a biblical worldview, you wouldn't see the hand of God in that. You would think that that was just arbitrary facts of history, just things that happen, just stuff that men do, just marauding invaders coming in and conquering Ammon and brutal men. That's just the way men were back then in the Middle East. And you wouldn't even see that here God takes credit for it. He's not even talking about Israelites here. He's talking about heathen peoples who he's going to use in order to punish Ammon. And it's not even going to be the Babylonians. And God says, I did that. I did that because of the way you treated my people because of your chicanery to bring Babylon down on my people. And of course, it was God who brought Babylon down on his people. But it was Ammon who was willing to drive Babylon down on Jerusalem. So God's going to punish Ammon for the way that they drove the Babylonians down on Jerusalem. That's a really, really sovereign God. 
So I don't want you to miss that God continues to take credit for all of it. It says you're going to be fire for the fuel. Your blood will be in the midst of the land, and you will not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So there's the feel-good message of the evening right there. Again, it's just judgment, judgment, judgment language. And I think what the book of Ezekiel is doing for us, kind of like we read last week where God said, you know, I'm going to punish you and I'm going to drive you out and I'm going to cut you down and the sword and the famine and the pestilence. But then God gave them the promise at the end of chapter 20. He said, and I'm going to restore you. Well, he's got a few more chapters of I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to, I'm going to take you into Babylon. I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to protect the land. I'm going to pour out my wrath on you. But then you know that Ezekiel's dry bones are coming up. You know that in a few chapters, we're going to get to God saying, to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And then he's going to say, this is the whole house of Israel who I'm going to raise up on the last day. So if you read the whole book from beginning to end, you get this sense of, okay, God is angry and God's wrath and God's judgment and God's sword and God's... But then you see that other side of the character of God come out. And as we're going chapter by chapter through the book, is sometimes you kind of lose the big picture. Sometimes you kind of lose that the same God who's being this full of wrath and this full of vengeance and this full of correction and judgment is the same God who's going to say, now even though I've wiped him out and corrected him, I'm going to restore them. I'm going to raise them up out of their graves. I'm going to take them back to the land that I gave them. I'm going to create a kingdom. I'm going to give the kingdom to the one it belongs to when he comes. So there's all this promise of restoration. There's all this promise of a kingdom to come in the book of Ezekiel. And again, you know, by the time we get to the end of it, it's going to be a temple and worship and Israel and a regathering. And so there's, there's good news coming. But right now we're right in the middle of the worst news in the book of Ezekiel. So, so walk around with your head down this week and slap your thigh and clap your hands and moan loudly. But in a few weeks or a couple of months, we're going to get to celebrate because God's not done yet because he does not abandon his people even as he corrects them. You got all that? Yes. yes. All right, good. Then I believe I'm done. Any questions? Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Okay, now everybody collectively cough. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.